picking it up where we left off last week. And it has been, as we've been looking into the Word, um, a third part series called Enforced Peace Restores Those Torn Two Pieces. David's kingdom had been torn to pieces. He was able to settle things. But we also know that he was leaving his son, Solomon, to put the punctuation mark on the settling of an unsettled nation. We see nations that are very unsettled, but there is good news. The Prince of Peace will add his punctuation mark to putting things in order and making things all right. There's a process, though, and that's where humanity gets to play itself out. And if they play themselves out contrary to God's will, then they will not be playing a part in the kingdom to come. The time in which that decision to follow the Lord was essential in being able to live eternally with the Lord and to serve alongside of Him. So these are the times that we're in. It's important. It's not a threat. It's actually a promise that we can be saved from damnation for eternal life by a simple investment of confessing that the Lord Jesus is Savior of the world. That's as simple as it is. It has nothing to do with being better than you are, doing more than you have. All of those things eventually become expressions that the Spirit of God works in us that translates to the lives of others not yet committed to God in a connecting point where they say, surely there must be a God, for I have not been treated as such. I have not known kindness. I have not seen such peace. I have never experienced love. And so that's really what we find so amazing is that God uses us, blesses us, enriches our lives, makes our life really count. So part of the preface to today's teaching is what do we do then in this process of holding on to the Lord? And so I took just a little bit different of a title to it because I think that it captures some of the important doctrines that we'll look at voiced by Jesus himself voiced by one whom we have come to appreciate greatly in his walk with the Lord Peter. And so we want to be able to have an idea of where this might be leading us. So I was just penning this actually when I was sitting down. And so when Jonathan gets a chance to put that up, it's titled The Cleanup for the What's Up. That's it. The Cleanup for the What's Up. That term has, has been something funny to me because um, I always hear it kind of in that commercial tone. It was, I don't remember the company that was using it, but what's up? Hey, what's up? What's up? You know, gangster language and 
barroom talk and now it's an app and so i'm guilty for using it too because i got the app on my phone it's not a bad app in fact i've had a lot of cool stuff that's been stored on it and it's actually the means by which we were able to communicate with one another when we went to israel that's why i got it but beyond that the title is suggesting to us that there is something that God has an expectancy for us. It's heaven that's up. And the business of the Lord right now is to do business with the world before it's too late. And so that's really one of the ideas right now. The cleanup of the Lord is really very easy for him to do. It's not as brutal as what some of us have found to be true about keeping up your home. Because the work of the Lord is through the Holy Spirit, and it's regenerative. When you've heard me talk about Zachary and others that have had the challenge of a neurological disconnect, it means that there was a severance in that communique. And the term that's appropriately used medically is a regenerative work where it's not something other than, it's actually that separation that took place, reconnecting and making communication between the brain and the appendage, the neurology, accurate, precise, just what it was intended to be and to do. So the regenerative work of the spirit is what he's doing in our life presently, continually, at work, not going, whoo, I'm so tired of this work, but actually enthusiastic about the work that he does within us. He's enthusiastic about it. We've had jobs that we go to and we go, not too much feeling it today. And we've had times where we also say, and I don't think I can do another thing regarding how I feel and regarding how much effort I'm going to put into it. But the Lord actually is one who delights in this process of cleaning up because of the what's up, of what he knows, of what Paul was forbidden to speak about, so glorious, so glorious it would actually be corrupting for us to know how splendid heaven is. There will be a time in which our ears will be open to it, our eyes will see it, but for now, the Lord says, keep your faith by keeping me in your heart and keep at what you're doing and doing well. And he's excited about every day that we wake up, every evening that we go to sleep on the cleanup that he's doing. It doesn't matter, last week I used an illustration that on my clothes, because of a dog and a cat, I just got yucked. And God didn't judge me for it. It was a practical yucking. Things happen in our life that are practical spots on us. But because the Spirit of God is continually in the work, enthusiastically, of cleaning us, in the provision of the Word, in the things that we ultimately see Him do by prayers of communion, He loves us. I didn't scold my dog or cat for marking me. I took care of them. That's my charge. While Christy's gone, I take care of them. I take care of my kids. That's my charge. I do so enthusiastically, happy to do it. And so in this text right now, 
God is happy to give a picture of a cleanup that for us on the intellectual level or the human level has a bit of seriousness to it because it's actually requiring the life of those who have been vindictive, rebellious. They have been those who have defied God in his appointment of David, and they are those who stand in the way of a kingdom that will be allowed to be extraordinary beyond what any his history books have ever recorded. Solomon and the kingdom that God gave him has been undersold, and God even allowed in the time that has passed dust to just settle over everything because he doesn't want man to have to invest his faith in what he does through men that he's making a communique to the world about. If we were able to honestly see the glory of Jerusalem in Solomon's time, have it almost where we just brush it all off, vacuum all the dirt away and could marvel at it, that isn't faith. It's only seeing to believe. God says, I want you to believe it and you'll see it in your heart. It's a mystery. But of all of the wonders that man finds himself enamored with, Solomon would have to be underrated and underestimated. But he's a picture of what God will say to this world will be awesome to look at, awesome to be a part of. That wasn't a distraction. That was moving into. So what's the next thought, Rich? <laughs> Here we go. Verse 36. We're going to be in 1 Kings, picking it up. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, no, for certain, you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Shimei would be the last character of a succession of presented people who all stood against the will of God. In what was their human assignment, they inevitably succumbed to pride and corruption and they stood in the way of God's ordained will that David would reign on his throne until he passed away and there would be a throne that would continue, that would bring about the lineage ultimately of the son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ. God wasn't going to change his mind. And those whom we have found terminology today, bad actors, characters, were going to be dealt with by the Lord. That's why I said it could make you squeamish because it does speak of 
not corporal punishment, although this would be a case of that, a punitive assignment saying, this is putting you in check. You'd better tend to it. You better follow it out or it'll cost you your life. The Lord has a means of directing a world system to say, you're in corporal punishment right now, but there's a punishment that's coming that will require your life and you will die. Joab was a picture of that. He would die with blood on his hands and no peace upon his head. He would go to the grave in the severity of a judgment and no matter how much he would cleave to the altar of sacrifice. It was too late for him to change the outcome. Abiathar, whom we had looked at, he was exiled. He's important because he was part of the priesthood. And we looked concerning the analogy of what Revelation gives us, seven distinct churches. And of those, two in particular committed Smyrna and the other was Philadelphia, Church of Love, Little Power, Smyrna, crushed continually. And then Ephesians does need to, or the church at Ephesus does need to have a note of commendation, but a plea from God, return to your first love. That's kind of how we signed off last week. How does it relate to these individuals? Well, because they represent, as human beings, a contemporary if you would, disposition of people outside of the church and people within the church presently. And as the title does mean it, clean up for the what's up, heaven. It's not a work, though, by the hands. It's a work of the heart. It is a commitment of the mind. It is the discipline of staying in the love of God and loving one another as God has commanded us to do so. Not necessarily easy to do. So we have Abiathar, but what did he end up doing? He was exiled and his resignation meant that his partner in the priesthood, Zadok, would take over. Very likely they were mutual in both their assignment, their responsibility, their admiration, their consistency, but one was seduced. That would be called in our terminology today apostasy. Turning away from God when he was in fact the God that you set your eyes upon, you transitioned from the world to the throne as best as you could, you declared him, you were faithful until an event, an occasion, in which something else grabbed your heart and stole it. Abiathar is exiled. Zadok takes the preeminent place of the priesthood. And for those who corrupt the priesthood, as we see in many of the churches today, they move into exile. They have time to repent and to change but we know the facts is that not every church that calls himself a church is faithful to the Lord of the church. A pending judgment, it will happen. And when the church proper, the one actually that is the maiden of the Lord, the bride of Christ, is taken, whatever remains 
of any facility, any structure that so named themselves the church, they'll realize, I've been exiled. What's up? Ain't happening to me. I'm down here. Something's going to happen to me. I knew it. Should have taught it. Should have lived it. But I got myself misled. And so that's one of the pictures that we can see. Remember that Adonijah was one who took power into his own hands. It was not given to him by the Lord. And the reason it's important to recite this is that he's a picture also of what the world will do when they take power from God that he's given to them to arbitrate over civility of men and to do so in a manner that honors him and makes for peace the living and the joy of serving one another in this world. It's not a perfect world, but God never intended it to fall simply into corruption without being checked, without there being resistance to rebellion. There's a way to resist rebellion. There's a way to put corruption in check. God has mandated in civil order to have a peacekeeper. But we say defund them. And we've still got a little bit more of God to get out of the way. So what happens? It gets worse. And so when I go back to this Adonijah, he's a picture of that kind of person that took things into his own hands. And then even when he had been spared, he decided to take one more thing into his hands, and that was a maiden. The picture of the maiden is a picture also of the church, one who the father saw in advance, one who the father kept ultimately for the son. It's a beautiful poetic picture. The Hebrews' scholastic studies point to the fact that this Shulamite that would be listed here became the Shulamite that Solomon adored, which is why when he was provoked, by the request of Bathsheba that he would be given audience. And the request of this maiden, he said, why don't you just give him the priesthood and the military in that request? Surely this day he shall die. And it represents what happens in these times. We, the Lord's maiden in waiting, the one whom he is writing poetry and singing love songs over, he protects. I love the romance in it, the implication. Song of Solomon is his poetic song. He erred following that, that's for sure. But the picture is one of a bridegroom who truly protects and is divinely and intentionally loving his maiden, saving her for himself no matter what the world system may do in its pompous arrogance to steal her for greater power, the Lord loves his bride. So as we look at Shimei, the last component part of what a world system does and what God is highly 
unfavorable towards is the blasphemy that comes from the mouths of people who resist God. And in this, as we take a look, Shimei has been given mercy because of his blasphemy. You may say, well, when was that evident? If you go back just, I guess, a couple of pages, um, we're going to go to 2 Samuel, and I'll have you turn to 16. Verse 5. Now when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out cursing continuously as he came. This means from his mouth and the curse being a blasphemous assault on David's position as king and on himself as a person of God. One who had been proven faithful one who in a deliberate act of humiliation to flee Jerusalem so that it would not be ransacked and pillaged by his son Absalom, he leaves in abject humiliation, but in reverent understanding that if God placed him there, God can return him there. And Shimei, as opposed to being now humbled by what David was doing, he became arrogant and blasphemed. That's what the world does when the church comes into abject humiliation based on what it must do, even though we know it wasn't necessary to have to do. It wasn't a requirement of certainty. We did it for the purpose of peace. We didn't do it for simply passivity. We did it to substantiate peace and a work of God that as we step back or move away, the Lord has room to make change happen. This guy, though, we see his tenacity, his evil tenacity. He threw stones at David. Do you know that the evidence in the scriptures, at least on two occasions, is Jesus was cornered to a place where he was going to be stoned. That's when he introduced himself to the community that he grew up in. And when he spoke the prophecy written of him in Isaiah, they took him over to the corner of a bluff. They picked up stones and their intention were to stone him and to throw him over. The scriptures say he simply vanished, walked away from it. God walks away from a majority of evil intentions regarding the stoning, even of his people, even of his name being blasphemed for an opportunity to make one more inflective difference in truth being given before it's too late. The Sermon on the Mount really was, as we've been reading through it, such an occasion able to be read probably in 17 minutes, but from the reading it would be indicative that it was a very long seminar to address publicly both those receiving the word gladly 
and those who were trying to find fault with it specifically. It's the love of God. Jesus could have done everything expeditiously, dusted off his hands and walked away from everything lawfully, but he didn't. Because love required him to not only show mercy and grace, but patience. This picture right now of Shimei tells us in many ways what we were like before we asked the Lord into our hearts. We were rock throwers. We were blasphemers. Though maybe you can't recall much of your mouth saying it or your mind thinking it, God knows that the heart, in fact, is storing it. Some of us just did better at keeping it to ourselves. But God saw it within ourselves. And that's the world today. It's troubling, isn't it? We at one time were troubled. Today, as you sit, I would presume you're less troubled because you've turned your life over. But there are people out there that are turning every which way but God's way. And God gets the blame for everything. We say God gets the glory in everything. Ultimately, he will get the glory in everything. And everything that happens that is gory is not God. There's an enemy that assaults with rigor the activities of the church and of the innocent who yet are to come into the church. And so at any rate, as you can look at this, it is, as my pages flipped on me, I'm going to go back and track that. It indicates that he was hurling both accusation and literally endeavoring to hit David with stones. Shimei also, Shimei also said in verse 7, thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. What does it sound like? It sounds like people blaming God, doesn't it? God is so bloody. The Old Testament, swords and heads, stonings, a bloody God. You celebrate Jesus who bled, bloody God. Who wants to follow a God that we would have to conform to that only speaks of himself as a sacrifice? Bloody God. But they don't understand that it's actually the sacrifice of God bleeding on our behalf that when blood is required of us, either the stopping of it from the heart that no longer functions or the atrocities that may indeed be invoked upon us by evil people or accidents that can happen. We've all bled. There's a point where you can only bleed so much. Jesus bled supremely and ever so much as we never have to worry about whether we're drained or not because he took care of it in being drained. We all would love to just, I suppose, when it's our time, 
be in a cozy bed with a little fireplace going, a nice good draw of breath. Prior to that, just a tickling of ice cold water, lemonade, and just one sigh and we're there. For some of us that may happen, for others it may not. But I know this, because God settled my life with his blood, doesn't matter what happens to this blood. He's satisfied it. He's taken care of me, no matter what. I can be wise. Shimei was stupid. He was so stupid that the mighty men that surrounded David said, let us take that fool's head off. And David said, representing the love of God, no, the Lord has permitted this insult to fall upon me. It's not going to happen now. I'll take it for now. But there will be a time in which if he does not repent, it will be upon him. And this is why when we come back to this story, there was this corporal punishment. God would that none should perish. So Solomon, understanding that principle, gives him a restraint. It's a restriction. You stay in this city. If you cross that Kidron brook, you will have brought blood down upon your own head. And this is what God says really to the world too. You're better off to stay in the city. You cross that brook. That means you've made your final decision. And that final decision that you made to walk away from the place of safety, a place that affords you even the opportunity to repent, to come near and draw close, to be an advocate for the kingdom instead of an adversary for the kingdom. You cross the Kedron Brook, you will have written your sentence. It's going to be upon you. That's the idea. That's why the attractiveness of the church is in similitude the attractiveness that Solomon was permitting for Shimei to enjoy after even such blasphemy against his father. The father takes personally the rejection of Jesus as a blasphemy. Jesus being so much in love with this world he was sent to save would affirm the conditions of his heart. All manner of sin is forgiven, but one, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean calling God names. He's willing to forgive all manner of sin. It means that the time that a man chose to dwell in Jerusalem, but by reason of excuse or arrogance or ignorance or rebellion crossed the Kidron Brook, that decision rendered one sentence. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You were given a directive to stay in the vicinity in which your spiritual life could be invigorated. You could have regeneration you could have forged generations of offspring that walked in faith and not walked away from faith. But you crossed the Kidron. And it's actually one of the beginning points of wisdom that Solomon exercised before he was given the endowment of wisdom that comes in the next unfolding. That's the picture. The Shimei is out there. They've got a reason to be angry at what God did. They were following someone else and that someone else was never intended to influence them to corruption. 
and God intercepted them, allowed David, even in his scenario of being humiliated, to grant him mercy at one voicing, one wink, his mighty men could have turned that guy into just shreds of meat for the vultures. And David said, don't. This has been permitted. Jesus knew that what would be turned on him, the voicing of Rome, and the fists up from his own community of the Jewish leadership that should have honored him but blasphemed him, he said, this is being permitted. He would say that when court was conducted and he was brought before Pilate and he had to correct Pilate, you would be unable to do anything if it were not my father's will. You have no power, but by the fact that he's given you power. You have nothing but a moment to consider the decision that you're going to render to me. And all he could do was say, I find no guilt in this man, but he washed his hands as opposed to dismissing this man. He would be haunted for what he did not do, for what even the Lord allowed his wife to have a dream of. Do nothing to this man. He's innocent. I had a dream about him. I have heard that history records that Pilate went insane because of the decision that he rendered in which he too crossed the Kidron Brook instead of remaining in the heart of God. We know that Jesus had to go to the cross and the Lord could have satisfied that as well. If there was a decision different than Pilate, somebody else would have made it. But it's interesting because it would seem that the Lord worked to have his eyes right on the heart of Pilate to say, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to do this? My people are going to do this. Do you want to do it? You're closer to me than my people are right now to me. And you don't have to do this. They will do it. You don't have to do it. And that's the same. There are things that we absolutely know that the world will do. They don't have to do it. And we need to be able to say to them, you don't have to make this decision. You do not have to be an adversary of God, no matter what your position is, no matter even if you, by conviction, feel that it's right to do this. You can remain safe for a season. You can be given time for a moment. But if you render this decision, and it even has, if you would, the diplomacy of saying, I find no fault in this man. You will be at fault for not identifying yourself with the man. There's one thing finding no fault in God, but there's a time in which that will render the execution of the soul because there was no faith. No faith. So Shimei ultimately moves from the area that he was to abide in. That's what it tells us. It happened at the end in verse 39, back to where we started. But two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Maka, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, 
Your slaves are in Gath. Gath was the city of giants. Big city. He loses two servants as slaves, and he goes to a big city. They were that important to him. He knew that he would be warranting a death sentence upon himself if he left the city. But for two servants, he said, eh, no big deal. No big deal. I'm sure that I can do this and not be seen, or I'm sure that I can do it and justify it. Surely Solomon will have pity on me. Mercy seems to be something that runs in the family. David was merciful to me. Solomon will be merciful to me. It's just for two slaves, two servants. Big city, fast trip, I'll be back. Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves, and Shimei went and brought the slaves from Gath. And Solomon, verse 41, was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. He made the trip, round trip, one-way trip. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. There are people within the church, there are people outside the church that find the word agreeable. Wow, that was that was good. Was it good? That was good. Worship was good. It's all good. I mean, that's actually a popular phrase right now. It's all good. I never say that. No, it's not. He's good. It's not all good. I, and by the way, I'm not going to be troubled if you say that to me. You know, I, I know, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. I'm just saying theologically, not all things are good, but God is good all the time. And so he heard this word irrefutably. See, some people that are actually, not in this case for this individual, they're very likable. They actually assess properly that things within the church and things said about God, yeah, it's a, that's a good word. That's a good word. That's a good song. Tap your feet, snap your hand. That's a good song. Yeah, okay, God's primarily good. He binds him to the word that he nodded because he failed in the commitment to honor that word that he was in agreement with. There are people that will fail the word of God even though they found themselves agreeable to it. They failed in their commitment to not leave it, to not leave God's people. Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, the word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your head. But King Solomon shall be blessed 
And the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. His kingdom will be established. The Prince of Peace will have an established kingdom by the authorization of his father, who has been highly insulted by a world in the terms of rejection and blasphemy. And I've got a little bit more time, and it's all good. I'm doing good. You're doing good. Aren't we all getting along good? Time's up. It's the cleanup for the what's up. The world is right now going to hell in a handbasket. Hell is a real term. It's unfortunate that it is used very inaccurately. It's meant to represent actually a place of torment and of judgment. It's not simply H-E double toothpicks, chopsticks, campfires in the eternal, marshmallows and schmores and partying with your friends. It has nothing to do with that. There's no party in hell. There's only the parting of the soul from the presence of God. And it seems to be that there's no relief in hell. Jesus would speak in the scriptures, and I want to close on this. I think one note that's very actually poignant to close on. Matthew 10, if you turn there with me, please. Matthew 10. Let's pick it up in verse 32. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, him, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, him, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Notice the next verse and why some people use an excuse because of the severity of the language. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Why can there be such tension within a household? Because it requires a solution. It requires God over the institution of the home. And even homes that have God over it will experience attacks from the enemy. And they will also experience, at times, great tensions with regard to becoming more like Jesus within the home. 
than they ever thought could possibly be expected of them, on both sides of it, husbands and wives. Because that is a perfecting institution, and it is permitted to perfect two people imperfectly in union, but giving everything that they've got for God, and ultimately the expected reunion. What's up? Heaven's up. Who's there? God's there. And the community of all believers who have passed before us in the lineage of faith. Jesus says it's going to be a requirement. You stay in Jerusalem. You stay in the city of peace. You have peace with me because I am the Prince of Peace. Don't cross the Kidron Brook. To even go after what you could say was important to you, was essential for you, was justified by you. Do not leave the city where I guarantee you life, where you have an opportunity to conform to me even more. Don't leave the city. What is happening in these days? People are leaving the church. Why? Well, it just wasn't what it should have been. Or I know some of the people that go to the church, and they're not like me. So I'm going to go across the Kidron and find other people like me. Well, then you won't. In the big cities, you're not going to find anyone like you or anyone that God would want you to like. Not in that way. That's the picture. Move over with me on a closing verse as well. Let me see if I'm able to find my placement here. I'd like you to go to um, 1 Corinthians 6. So you'll have to do a little bit of turning right after Romans. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's pick it up in um, verse 9. Shimei's, Joab's, Abiathar's, Absalom's, Adinajah's. All of these, all of those listed represent something in particular that very likely is what is being listed here in verse 9. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice this. This is a good point. Why? Because it tells us what we were at some point in time. And such were some of you. But here's the good news. Why? Because it's about what's up. Notice what God's done for us. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that a wonderful closure to what at the same time was a very sobering indictment? Such were some of you, were, past tense, well, I kind of had a bad thought before I came to church. In fact, I'm having a bad thought right now about you, Pastor. 
You're washed. You're cleansed. The Lord's doing that immediately. I forgive you. At the same time, I know that you forgive me. Or at least that's what our terms should be able to reconcile towards one another. It's that such were some of us. And honestly, when we look in the mirror, we go, mm, I think there's some of that still in some of this. Lord, what do we do? It's okay. You're washed. You're justified. God's done it all for you. What does that tell us? It's his love, it's his faithfulness, and it's kindness from God to each one of us. Why? Because we are the maiden in waiting. We are his bride. We are going to be protected from the Adonijahs who want to have us and claim us and steal our souls. God says, you're not touching that woman. I've got songs that I'm singing over her poetry that I'm penning to her, jewelry from the spirit that exalts me, glorifies her. She's beautiful. You're not touching her. What does the enemy do? Oh, you've been touched. Yeah, I saw what you did, heard what you said. And the Lord says, I saw nothing of that cleansed by my blood. What does it compel us to do? Live for him. Live for him and to die well when it's our time. Dying well simply means, huh, it is required that all men die and therefore I shall. I'm going to die well with a happy heart, a smile if I can muster it, but if not, I will die well knowing that my soul has been kept well. Whatever happens to me, which again is the mystery, but even Jesus didn't allow that to plague him. He never said, by the way, this is my last will and testament, and on this particular time, after I die, this is what needs to take place. It didn't even make a point of anything that would happen to him following that, except this, three days, I'm out. In the interim period, whatever works for you. Whatever the word of God says concerning me. Because he was able to say specifically, three days, this temple will be built again, raised up. But on the details, he never clued anybody in. It's because that wasn't the important emphasis. So in the language right now of simply closing on the establishment of Solomon's kingdom. His name means both as what we don't frequently hear, Jedediah, a son who is loved, and Solomon, a man of peace. It's established. We'll be moving in and out of great renderings of divine decisions we will see the magnanimous nature of God and blessing him in spite of some of the human frailties you will see in him. But you need to understand this as well. God is magnanimous to us too. He's huge in what he gives us. Even though our failings are obvious to us, he is generous beyond anything we deserve. 